This is the ninth week in a series of messages we've called Turning Points. And we're walking our way through the back third of the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, which is the historical account of the time in history when uh, the, the kingdom of Israel, so here's the Mediterranean Sea, here's the kingdom of Israel, there had been a civil war and the kingdom had divided in half. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom in uh, 722 BC was overrun and completely destroyed. And that left the, the southern kingdom of Judah as the lone flag standing, flapping in the wind, representing God's people. Uh, so Jerusalem was in Judah, and they continued to be a, a viable country for another 150 years. But during that time, they had a series of kings who were mostly increasingly departing from God's way and God's will for them. And because of that, God ultimately allowed the Babylonians to come in and overrun them. And we've been talking about the period of history that was, uh, it's kind of a discouraging period of history, but the period of history that describes the decline and fall of the kingdom of Judah. Um, so to start us off this morning, I want to do something really different if we can. I want us to do a responsive reading about why we're here. Because still in our nine o'clock service, and thank you for those of you who uh, those of you who are joining us right now and those of you who will join us later at home, but still in our nine o'clock service, we're not back yet. So I feel like we need to be reminded here, and we'll do it again at 11. We need to be rem reminded of what we're doing here and what this is. So before we jump into what is a really strange little passage of Scripture this morning, I want us to give ourselves a reminder. So if you would, stand with me. Let's go old school. And uh, stand up, and we're going to read responsively. Pete, give me that next slide. I'll read the dark print, and you read the light. And this is taken from a verse in Psalm 122. I will rejoice with those who said to me. Yes, they said it so energetically. What does it mean for us to go to the house of the Lord? Huh, Okay. Well, what does it mean to go to church? He paused for dramatic effect. It means to gather with others who believe what we do, brag about Jesus, tell God's stories, encourage and support one another. Okay, so do we have to come here? to this building to do that. So I will rejoice with those who said to me, Father, remind us today why we're here, what we're doing, what this is. I don't know, in our busyness, in the weirdness of what's going on right now in the culture around us, and uh, we, can just, we can lose the narrative. I ask today for a reminder. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. 
So let me read you what when uh, we sketched out the whole series for this summer, we got to this passage, and it was kind of a passage in between passages. It's an odd, awkward little passage of Scripture, and uh, I've wondered for weeks what I was going to do with this, and, you know, over the last couple of weeks, it's kind of come into perspective for me. It's a really in-between passage, and the interesting thing about this passage is this is the kind of thing that you some, if you read the Bible regularly, and I know many of you do, occasionally you'll stumble into a passage like this. You're trying to read for your devotions, and you read a passage like this, and your response is usually something really holy like, what? What happened? What does that mean? What's going on? So what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage, then we're going to back up from the passage, and instead of digging in and breaking the passage apart and massaging it like we usually do, we're going to stand back from the passage about three or four feet, and we're going to make some observations about that passage that refer both to that passage and, and everything else that we read in the Bible. So this is, this morning, 2 Kings 23, 31 through 35. 2 Kings 23, 31 through 35. Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. Now, we've said this already, but if you're new to this series so far, we're tracing our way through this list of kings at the back of 2 Kings, and, and uh, these this is the name Jehoahaz, and this represents his name in Hebrew, by the way. And in Hebrew, they read from right to left instead of left to right, so it reads this way. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath so that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in his place, in the place of his father Josiah, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt, and there he died. Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. And in order to do so, in order to do so, he taxed the land and exacted the silver and gold from the people according to their assessments. All right, three observations about this weird little in-between passage. Observation number one, I have a really good friend and, and uh, this is interesting for the boys and girls that are in here and our teenagers. I have a really good friend who is a college professor and he teaches Old Testament. Imagine doing that for a living. He teaches Old Testament to college students. And he said something really interesting to me one time. I was actually complaining about the Bible. And he said, you know, we don't have the Bible we want. We have the Bible we have. And it's the Bible we need. So what he meant was the Bible we want would answer every question. There would be no controversies. People wouldn't disagree with one another. There wouldn't be Catholics and Protestants. There wouldn't be Baptists and Presbyterians. It would just all be laid out really plainly for us. And, and in the culture, we would have the answer to all of those questions that, that we disagree about. And if you're a parent, you'd be able to turn to chapter 14 and it would tell you, here are the seven things that you absolutely must do for your children when they're zero to five. And by the way, in your marriage, 
here are the nine things that you have to do and here are the 14 things that you absolutely cannot do. It would be a long list and it would be a formula. But that's not what we get. That's not the Bible that we have. The Bible that we have is a story. It's a story. And it's God's story. It's how God interacts with human beings like us, in fact, exactly like us. It's how we typically interact with him, rightly and wrongly. So as we read the story of these kings, the point is not for us to go out, oh, I need to do that too. The point for us is to recognize, in fact, some of those are ways that we absolutely should not be reacting and responding. This is how we are trying to build a relationship with God, human beings just like us. How he offers himself to human beings just like us and the results of those interactions. So what happens to us when we pick up the Bible and read a passage like this? And I'm going to suggest to you it's the same thing that happens no matter what passage of the Bible we pick up. We sow seeds into our heart and into our minds. And if those seeds take root, then they produce fruit at some point later in our life. We may or may not remember where those seeds came from, but they produce fruit of better choices, mistakes avoided, more patience being able to be offered, more love being able to be offered to others, more helpfully being able to receive love from others. Increasingly, there is better and better fruit in our lives because we sow these seeds into it. By the way, thank you, Kristen, for that prayer. And that's the same thing that happens for those of us who volunteer with our kids upstairs and downstairs. Every Sunday morning, you have an opportunity to sow seeds into the lives of young men and young women. Seeds that, if they take root, will one day in their life bear fruit of better choices Mistakes, perhaps, that you made that they can avoid. They may not remember where those seeds came from, but those seeds are planted deeply. Uh, it's not a neat formula for how to do life. That's the Bible we want. But what we have is the Bible we have, and it's the Bible we need. It's God's story of how he interacts with us. Second observation about this passage. God has a way, and it's the right way, it's the way that makes our lives work. God has a way. You know, uh, the people around us, our friends, our peers, they have a way. Our, our company has a way. Our culture has a way. Other cultures have a way. God has a way. And it's a way that we were designed to live in. It's the fuel. It's the, it's the path on which we were designed to walk. And it's a way that makes our lives work. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Bill Russell was preaching, and, and he called this section of the Bible that we're talking about historical theological narrative. That's a fancy way of saying it's history. It's, it's true. It really happened. It's, but it's history with a point. It's not just the retelling of events, but it's the retelling of events to prove a point. These authors are trying to prove a point. And what's the point of this passage? Well, I think the point of this passage, in fact, the point of the entire section of Scripture that we're talking about all summer long, and if you miss everything else, please don't miss this. It, I think it's summarized very nicely in two passages from Proverbs. Here's the point 
Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. So each of these kings, never did they say, you know what, I know this is stupid and idiotic, but I'm going to do that. I know, I know this is disastrous, but I want to do that. I, wanna, I think I want to do the thing that I don't want to do. I'm going to do the thing that's the most disastrous. Not once did they say that. There is a way that seems right to a person. And you've done it many times in your life, those of you who've been around for a while. You've done things that, that seemed right to you. It felt right. Man, diving into this relationship feels good. It feels right. But in the end, if it's not God's way, it leads to death. Let me point to another passage from Proverbs that I think summarizes the point of this passage and of the entire summer. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you know this. For a few of you, this is your life verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. We're going to apply this very specifically in just a second, but watch this. And he will make your paths straight. It doesn't say he'll make your path easy, but it says he'll make your path straight. And you know, the, the quickest way to get from point A to point B, the most efficient way to get from point A to point B is a straight line. God will make your, God's way, following God's way, will lead to a straight path to get from where we are to where God wants us to be. This, this business of God having a way and it being the right way for us, uh, if you think about that and trace that through Scripture, you'll see it everywhere. For instance, that's why the psalmist said what he said in Psalm 25. And I want you to think about God having a way and it being the way for us. And then remember that in light of what we're going to look at in Psalm 25. And I want you to do this with me. Again, once more, one more time, let's do some spiritual aerobics. Would you stand and let's read Psalm 25 and uh, let's read this uh, responsively. Again, I'll read the light print, the dark print. You read the light print. Psalm 25, and listen to what the psalmist says. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Okay, here's the payoff. Look, who's the person who fears the Lord? Well, him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Did you get that? That's a really fancy, poetic way of saying he's going to make your path straight. Not easy. There's going to be a well-being around your life. There's going to be an inheritance that flows from you. If you follow his way, why don't you sit back down? Uh, 
Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim did not follow God's way. They followed the pattern of most of the kings of the nations around them. They, they, they did what they thought was the right thing to do. They followed the pattern of most of the late kings of Judah. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We get that summary sentence twice. And because of, because of that pattern, because they didn't follow God's way, God allowed the natural consequences, God allowed judgment to fall on them. And Judah, by the way, as I said last week, never recovered from this spot. And that brings me to point number three. So let's, let's make all of this this morning applicable to Loudoun County, can we? Especially in light of us going back to school, I'm thinking of Kristen's prayer. Point number three, this passage reminds me, this entire section of Scripture reminds me that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. All right, let me jump into the current cultural climate here in Loudoun County, Virginia, if I may. You know, we've made national news many times over the last month. Um, I'm going to be, boys and girls that are with us, I'm going to be a little bit boring, but bear with me. Um, We find ourselves here, whether you know it or not, it, it may be going over your head partially or mostly. For others of you, you are highly engaged. Uh, We find ourselves embroiled in a debate here about critical race theory. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard about this, the the whole school board brouhaha. Evidently, the school board here in Loudoun County is imposing language and approach towards students and even specific literature selections that are heavily influenced by critical race theory. there are those who are wildly opposed to this. I think some of us uh, have no idea what the debate is even about. I want to address that this morning. And then some of us are incredibly animated about this, and I want to address that as well. Um, I want you to know, frankly, uh, from what I've learned I'm a little bothered by critical race theory and by that approach, and I want to tell you why. Why do I say that? Now, I never heard of critical race theory before about a year ago, Uh, but I've I've tried to do some work on understanding what it is because it's certainly become a buzzword in certain circles, and I've tried to figure out what it suggests because now I'm hearing it almost every day. I don't know about you, but constantly. I'm going to talk a little bit more thoroughly about all of this at a later date, later in the fall. But for now, let me say why I'm troubled because of what I've learned. And then I want to talk about what our response to all of this should be. As residents of Loudoun County, and especially those of us who are parents, who are contemplating school options for kids. That's the part I really want us to focus on, what our response should be. Critical race theory is, fancy word, it's a philosophical framework. It's kind of a a mental way of understanding cultural relationships on a large scale. So how whole groups of people interact with one another and how they relate to one another. It's built on, uh, you've heard this name before, Karl Marx's theory of opposing forces. So, So Marx had this 
theory that, that one side in cultural interaction is always the oppressor and one side is always the oppressed. And Mark, Marx believed that the oppressed should rise up and overthrow the oppressor. That's the only way that real justice and real freedom, according to Marx, will ever be accomplished. The oppressor won't give it. They always work toward their own self-interests. So the oppressed must overthrow the oppressor and the systems that the oppressor uses to facilitate the oppression. You following me so far? And at the risk of oversimplifying, which I'm only going to talk for a few minutes, so I will, but at the risk of oversimplifying, according to critical race theory, pretty much in our cultural setting, maybe in all cultural settings, all minorities are oppressed. That's racial minorities, sexual minorities, the disabled, etc. All minorities are oppressed. And in order to achieve real justice, these oppressed groups must dismantle the systems that are oppressing them and push aside their oppressors. Now, almost no one argues that there aren't real problems in consistently securing justice for minorities in our culture, in every culture. Let me say that again. If you struggle with this, then uh, I think you're in an extremely small percentage in America, and, and I hope a radically small percentage at Gateway. Almost no one argues that there aren't real problems, real problems, in consistently securing justice for minorities in our culture, in every culture. You see it in, in almost every part of our, our cultural bearing in almost every part of our economic outlay, there are pro real problems in securing justice for minorities especially. The argument arises when we try to identify what are the systems that need to be dismantled and what does pushing aside the oppressors look like. According to many critical race practitioners, the systems that need to be changed, this, is, uh, this isn't um, conspiracy theory, I'm, I'm uh, reading from critical race theory practitioners, the systems that need to be changed include capitalism, the nuclear family, and the church. This is why for some of you, you're wondering, why in the world are people animated against this? Because we want justice, and we do. The animation comes from uh, the systems that have been identified as oppressing agencies. So again, the oppressive systems include uh, capitalism, the nuclear family, and the church. These systems, or these structures, have been used to keep oppressed peoples in their place, and they must be dismantled. As I said, critical race theory suggests that the way change will come is if these systems are overthrown and they must be deconstructed. Now, 
Not everyone who talks about critical race theory believes all of that or even understands all of that. For many people, critical race theory has become a code for saying we just want things to be more just across our whole system and we want to teach our children about what's really happened in our country's history without whitewashing it. And I hope that many people, maybe, maybe most people, want that. I hope most of us want that. I hope most of us want things to be more just across our whole system. And I hope more of us want our children to be taught America's history without whitewashing it. So, because people are using in this debate uh, terms in wildly different ways. They mean very, very different things by the same terms. And because some of the real arguments behind the arguments are pretty scary. And again, not everybody knows the arguments behind the arguments, but because some of the arguments behind the arguments are pretty scary, and, and because we are so highly sensitized and so deeply divided right now as a culture, this debate gets messy and hurtful. We talk across one another, and we scream without listening, and we act without grace. So as Christ followers, how are we supposed to respond to this environment? Now, you may disagree with some of what I just said and some of that analysis. We're going to talk more about this. We'll be very frank about it. I'll, I'll give more information. But let's say that you agree with what I've just said. And not only let that, let's say that you're alarmed by what you've heard. I know some of you are. So how do we respond as, as neighbors, as friends, as parents? Okay, now, back to point three. <laughs> the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. We don't respond out of fear. We don't respond out of alarm. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminded us that, quote, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. A spirit of fear grabs on. A spirit of fear balls up in anguish. It is highly worried and angst-ridden. A spirit of fear shrinks. It obsesses. It overreacts to stimuli because it's triggered. Triggered. We don't need to react to the culture around us ever. I'm going to say that again. We don't need to react to the culture around us ever. We respond to God. We don't react to the culture. We respond to God. We do what God says. We follow God's ways. So in our response, we must listen for what God wants us to do. In fact, we resist fear. We depart from anything that causes the fear. We don't need to be afraid. We haven't been given a spirit of fear. So let's get really practical. I know that a number of you aren't parents, but, but some of you are. And I've, I've, I've heard a lot of different things discussed, and some of those things have been discussed rightly, and some of them, them have been discussed with a ball of anxiety. So, God may be telling you to homeschool your children because of what's going on around and in the schools around us. 
If God is telling you that, then step in and begin to move in that direction. And if there's part of you that's feeling like, wait, I can't do, I can't homeschool my kids for eight years, he's not asking you to do that. He's asking you to do something right now. So do what he's asking you to do right now and let him worry about next year. God may be asking some of you to move out of the area. I hope not. It's going to be tough for you to commute to Gateway every weekend, but he may be asking some of you to move out of the area. If God is asking you to do that, then step in that direction and follow what God is saying, not in reaction to the culture, but in response to what God is saying. Or God may be telling some of you to send your children to school and get involved. Show your children, give them a master's degree in how to respond to the culture with love and grace and appropriately while defending your faith. Let them learn. You may be, they, they may be missing an incredibly valuable lesson in watching you respond to God and not react to the culture. God has a way. And when we follow that way, we're in the safest place in the world. If we'd been living in 600 B.C., in the middle of the reign of King Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, this one, he reigned from uh, 609 B.C. to 598 B.C. 598 B.C. Eleven years later, Babylon would come in and ransack Jerusalem. And I mean ransack. They would destroy the temple, knock down the wall. They would penetrate the city that was supposedly impenetrable. They would penetrate and devastate. 609 to 598, if we'd been living in Judah in 600 B.C., by the way, we wouldn't have seen it coming. We might have been really chapped about the taxes he imposed. What's he thinking? Does he realize how much this is weakening us economically? This is killing our family and my business. How can he do this? What are we getting from Pharaoh anyway? But don't miss this. We would have been focusing on the wrong thing entirely. The problem with Judah in 600 B.C. was not the new taxes. The problem was their neglect for the poor and their rampant idolatry. The problem with Judah in 600 B.C. was not Pharaoh Necho and his demands. It wasn't Jehoiakim's acquiescence to those demands. The problem was not the threat of Assyria or even the emerging and growing threat of Babylon. The problem was their disconnection from God and the fact that they had departed from following God's way. Jehoiakim was following a long line of decision makers who trusted in their own understanding, who had forgotten the way of the Lord, who pursued plans that were reaction to the circumstances around them instead of seeking God and responding to his leading. So Christ follower, the way we should respond to our current cultural climate is the way we always respond to whatever is going on around us. No different. We seek God and we follow his way. If we have a family, we lead them in following God's way. And he takes care of the rest. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 6, when he said, listen to this, seek first the kingdom of God and his 
righteousness and everything else will be added. You know, we don't have the Bible we sometimes want. But we have the Bible we need and it reminds us constantly, it reminds us constantly in every story that God has a way. And his way is the right way. It's the way of the straight path. It's the way we were designed to follow. And putting ourselves in the center of that way is the safest place on earth. Now before we leave, one more thing. I have to remind us that this doesn't mean that everything will be neat and clean and easy for us. The person who coined that phrase, the safest place to be is the center of God's will, the person who coined that phrase was a woman named Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom and her family rescued over 800 Jew- Jews during the Nazi regime leading up to and during World War II. And when they were discovered, she and her family were imprisoned and tortured by the Nazis, and some were killed. And still, Tenboom tells us the safest place to be, the safest place to be, is in the center of God's will. But you may be thinking. That doesn't sound very safe. I I don't want to suffer, and I don't want my children to suffer. Well, then, you need to find a way to live outside of this world. Because in this world, suffering is guaranteed. We 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 don't have the no suffering choice. That's not available to us. But we can choose how we face suffering. We can choose who we trust through suffering. We can choose what we believe the ultimate outcome will be. And those choices make all the difference. And we have to make that choice nearly every day. Nearly every day, we face a turning point. We will choose God's way or we will choose another way. But both ways include suffering. But on, on, on one path, God is with us through and in suffering, and ultimately we will end up where and how he designed. So I choose that way. That's the safest way. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I hardly know how to pray for us this morning. Uh, we, we are so prone to drift and wander. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you will use this to remind us to plant ourselves in the very center of your will, your plans, your way that we'll learn it, that we'll cling to it. Uh, For any of us, Lord, who have felt ourselves step to the left or to the right, and we're we're beginning to see that in the level of anger or the level of anxiety or the level of press or the level of yearning or the, the angst in our lives, Lord, I pray today you'll remind us all we need to do is rest in you respond to what you're telling us find the heart of it and push in 
So right now, Father, we, we take a minute right now and seek your will for what, what's confronting us about our home, about our business, the to-do list that's, that's, that presses in on us in the coming week. about our health, about our family. We're reminded, uh, I mean, you know, God, it is realistic. There are things that could cause deep alarm and worry if you weren't in control, but you are. And we see the enemies around us. But, but we're not going to make the choices that these kings made. Because the battle belongs to you. And you're more than capable. This morning, we place our hearts and our minds by an act of our will in the center of who you are and in the center of your will. That's the safest place to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.